This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So again, my name is Ted Sin. I'm one of the elders here at New City. And uh, we continue on this morning in our sermon series on the unique passages of Luke. And the topic this morning from chapter 11 is that of prayer. It's this incredible privilege that believers have uh, to communicate directly to God, communicate directly with God. And so Luke stresses prayer more than the other gospel writers, more than Matthew, Mark, and John. And he does this in several ways. Uh, first, Luke wrote of Jesus' habit of prayer, and he, uh, he recorded Jesus in prayer uh, more often than the other three gospel writers. So, for example, Luke chapter 5, verse 16, he writes this. Jesus would withdraw. So he's speaking of a habit. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 18 is actually similar to our chapter 11, verse 1. He says this, Jesus was praying alone and the disciples were with him. So not only would Jesus get away into isolation and pray, Jesus would pray internally, uh, you might say, uh, in his heart, even as others were around him. So Luke not only tells us more about Jesus praying, or he doesn't just record Jesus praying more often than Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke also uh, gives us more of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Uh, So our passage this morning is an example of a unique passage uh, about Jesus teaching on prayer, and, and Luke gives it to us. If you look at your text, it's on the other side of your worship folder insert. Uh, In verse 1, the disciples evidently have picked up on the centrality of prayer in Jesus' life, and they make this very general request of Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. And so from verse 2 to verse 13, we have Jesus' theology on prayer. Okay, He he gives them a summary uh, of his teaching on prayer. He gives them a, a pattern. He gives them a posture, he gives them a paradigm, and he gives them a promise. So this morning, no four points, just three. 
We're going to skip the pattern. Verses 2 through 4 in Luke, they were not read for you. Uh, They are Luke's condensed version of the Lord's Prayer uh, that Matthew gives in chapter 6. But we're going to start in verse 5. And and skipping over the pattern, which most of us are familiar with, we're going to actually uh, think about the posture of prayer, uh, the paradigm of prayer, and the promise related to prayer. So there's a personal posture, a relationship paradigm, and then a particular prayer that God promises to answer. Okay, so let's dig in. We're going to start with the posture of prayer. It might be better to say this is the Christian's approach in prayer. Uh, I think this is going to be a little unexpected for us. I think this is going to be a little uncomfortable for us. This is how we are to go to God. This is how we're to make requests of God. This is how we're to speak with God. In a word, verse 8, impudence. So Jesus tells this parable. If you look in verses 5 through 7, he's, he's saying this is your posture in prayer. Uh, the parable is of a man who had a, a friend unexpectedly show up at his house at midnight. And the bread that this man had made that morning was long gone. And so in a culture uh, uh, that regarded hospitality in, in significant ways compared to how we think of it, th- this man is in a very tight spot. His friend could not alert him to the fact that he was traveling in the first place, where he was in his journey, and and when he might get there. There was no cell phones, no texting, no email, not even snail mail, which my my kids are unfamiliar uh, with even that concept these days. The the, the traveler just shows up. And and with no 24-hour convenience stores to run to quickly, the main figure in the parable is in a cultural dilemma. And so Jesus says that the host goes to his neighbor. In verse 5, he calls him friend. And he asks him for a loan of three loaves. It's the same word as bread. Uh, When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, give us our daily bread. Same word Jesus is teaching on not what to pray, but how to pray. And remember, midnight is midnight. Middle of the night. In a time and place with no electricity, this man and his family would have been asleep uh, for quite some time. They're probably in the middle of their night. And and the the sleeping, grumpy man responds, verse 7. First of all, there's no customary friend uh, like verse 5, but but simply, do not bother me. The door is now closed shut. The the door is fastened. So he's referencing this large, heavy uh, wooden beam that that served as a lock in the ancient Near East. For this man to even unlock the door and hand him the bread, his wife or his child would would have had to get up with him, uh, take this six-foot beam uh, out of the lock, set it down, open the door, and he's like, can't do it. The door's locked. And then he keeps going. If you go back to verse 7, he says, look, my children are in bed with me. And so in most ancient homes, there was one room. The room had one bed. It was a raised platform. The family would get out uh, mats and blankets and roll them out uh, for the nighttime. So the man uh, indicates that he has three loaves. But, But he's saying in these circumstances, quote, I cannot get up and I cannot give you anything. Quick connection to verse 3. If you have your Bibles open, you can see in the Lord's patterned prayer, give us each day our daily bread. Verse 7, I cannot give you bread. Jesus says in verse 8, here's your posture for prayer. Be impudent. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. 
Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In a word, this is our posture, impudence. It means boldly, persistently, audaciously, stubbornly, shamelessly, presumptuously, rudely. The old King James rightly said to pray with importunity. To importune is to beg and to badger and to bother and to nag and to hassle. And so in between verses 7 and 8, this man, this man who is praying, if you will, has a decision to make. Will I go home without my request or will I get what I need? Not because we're friends, but because I'm persistent and I'm impudent. Jesus says in verse 9, and I tell you, so here's the point of the parable. Ask. So it's a command. There's urgency to it. He says, ask. So it's a command, but there's also a continuous verb here. So it's talking about persistence. He's saying, ask and keep asking, and it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Verse 10. Everyone who keeps asking receives. The one who keeps seeking finds. To the one who keeps knocking, the door will be unlocked and opened. Only Luke in chapter 18 records Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. It starts out this way, verse 1. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. The, the parable is of a widow seeking justice before an unjust and, and corrupt judge. And the judge says in verse 5 uh, uh, of Luke chapter 18, this is not a picture of God, by the way. This is the, this is the picture of what God wants to see in our prayer lives. The judge says in verse 5, Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down through her continual approaching impudence. You have to remember, these are parables. They're not allegories. So in an allegory, every element of the story uh, has a detail that that it correlates to in reality. But in a parable, there's usually just one main point. And if you press the details too far, you find yourself in heresy. So in these two parables, the context in Luke 11, the context in Luke 18, uh, these two parables are not answering the question, what is the God like to whom you pray? They're answering the question, what are we to be like? What is our posture to be in prayer? Impudent, stubborn, audacious, bold, barefaced, importune. Don't stop asking God to provide what you need in this life. Don't stop coming to God to ask him to show you his calling for your life. Don't stop knocking on the door of his heart, begging him to convert and to save and to deliver and to grow you and your children and your neighbor and your spouse and your coworker. Like a rude neighbor, bother him with your requests. Like, like a widow with nothing to lose, beat him down with your continual approaching. Does that make you and me and us feel just a little bit uncomfortable? Not just uncomfortable uh, because we don't pray like that, but, but uncomfortable because it feels so disrespectful and it feels so, so arrogant and it feels so inappropriate. Should, should we really approach and interact with and have this posture with the holy, awesome, majestic, glorious creator and sustainer of everything? And the short answer is 
Yes. Whenever the holy, awesome, glorious, majestic creator and sustainer of everything tells you to do something, it's usually a good idea to do it. Yes. But additionally and further, Jesus, in his teaching on prayer, in his theology on prayer, doesn't just give a pattern. He doesn't just give a posture. He gives a paradigm for prayer. In every relationship you can think of, except one, in every relationship you can think of, this posture is unhealthy, it is disrespectful, it is inappropriate. But in the relationship paradigm that Jesus gives, this is not only appropriate, it's beautiful, it's winsome, it's encouraging. Look with me at verse 11. The relationship paradigm that Jesus gives for prayer. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give? Think with me, the only relationship that makes this posture, the posture of verses 5 through 10, the only relationship that makes it appropriate and healthy is that of a young child and his parent. If my wife, Trisha, who, who we're not fighting right now, she's serving in children's ministry. This is, this is hypothetical, okay? If she approaches me over and over and over with the same request, in that relationship, we call that nagging. It's unhealthy, it's inappropriate, it's disrespectful. If somebody works for you and they incessantly bother you about something, not liking the answer that you've given them, we call that unemployment, all right? <laughs> or, or, or at least a reprimand would be appropriate. If a college student constantly calls home for help and advice and money and comfort and connections, we call that codependency. But if a child, a young child, doesn't tug on their parent's sleeve and doesn't ask a hundred questions and doesn't keep bugging their mom through the day, if that doesn't happen, we're concerned. In college, I volunteered at a mental health institution and there was a, there was a group of preschool uh, and early elementary age students, they were there. And either through illness or through abuse, uh, they would never, ever ask for help. They would never, ever chase down a curious thought. They would never, ever voice a need. They would never, ever look to a parent figure for provision. That's unhealthy. That's tragic. That is not right. I am not saying as a parent that we have the patience for it and we always appreciate our children's impudence. I'm just saying it's a normal, healthy part of our relationship with them. And so now think, Jesus is the master teacher. He uses the parable of the friend at midnight to describe what we should be like in prayer. And then he teaches us that the God that we pray to is a father to a young child. So the well-known Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we did not study this morning in verses two through four, we're gonna save that for another day. How does Jesus teach us to open our prayers? Father. It is the relationship paradigm of prayer. So when the, the New Testament is teaching on prayer, 
It uses the term pater, and it uses the term Abba. Okay, pater in the Greco-Roman culture and Abba in the Jewish culture were both the address of a young child, the, 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 young, the address a young child would use for their dad. In prayer, you're a young child tugging on the sleeve of your loving, caring, patient Heavenly Father. He is not asleep. He is not grumpy. He, he is not an unjust judge. He's attentive, he's engaged, and he loves you. Think think about verses 11 and 12. It would be truly evil for for a dad to give his son a poisonous snake instead of a fish, okay? If a dad gave a rolled up scorpion uh, to his his toddler instead of an egg, that would be evil. But, but But only a son at the age of a toddler would be fooled by, by the extent of the similarities between a snake and a fish. Only a toddler would be confused by the extent of the similarities between a rolled up scorpion and an egg. Je- Jesus in the parable itself, he, he's indicating that our position is that of little child. In Luke 18, Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom, if you want to get into the family, if you want to be great in the kingdom, if you want to be great in the family, you've got to go back, become more like a little child. If you're new to the Bible, one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith is adoption. That Christians are adopted by God into his family and they are enjoyed as beloved children. This is not something we earn. This is not something we merit. This is something we receive. Galatians chapter four. If you remember the call to worship, Paul says that adoption is a gift. And he tells us how we receive that gift. He says that God the Father sent his son into the world to redeem us from slavery. So because of sin, because we've broken the law, we're enslaved to sin and death. And Jesus, the eternal son of God, comes to earth as a man, lives a perfect life under the law, dies in our place to redeem us, to save us, to empower God to adopt us. In the exchange between Jesus and us, he takes our sin and our guilt and our death and he gives to us his righteousness and his record and his perfection and his life and his relationship with the Father. In our prayers, we do not come to the Father in an attempt to gain love. We come into his presence already loved, already loved and already adored. In the Old Testament, God is called Father 15 times. And never are the masses, never are the people like us, never are we allowed to address him as father in prayer. But in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus calls him father 165 times, teaching the disciples every time. It's the repeated teaching of the New Testament that the relationship that should pop into our minds when we consider prayer is a child to a father. What makes that focused reality uh, uh, so massive in the New Testament? It's Jesus. The Son of God comes into the world, lives for us, dies for us, gives us his position with the Father. I would ask us, to reflect on our prayer lives, to reflect on our prayer habits. Do we pray and approach God and do we go to him only when things are really bad? Do do we ask God for something once and then we assume, well, you know, 
He heard me the first time. I don't want to bother him with that again. Do we wonder what we have to do better to get God to hear us more clearly, as if we enter into his courts in our name and in our own righteousness? Jesus is teaching us. We pray in his name. Our adoption, our access, our approach is in him. If you think about it, prayer actually is a fantastic diagnostic to the extent to which you and I believe the gospel. It's an incredible diagnostic for how well we actually believe. Do our prayers reveal the faith of a child? Brash, bold, barefaced, impudent. I think often my prayers, specifically when I get into that, that place in my prayers where I'm making requests, I think that that time in my prayer life reveals that I think of God more like a slave master than a daddy. In Galatians 4, Paul says we're not slaves anymore. We're kids. When would a slave, a bondservant employee, when would they go to their employer and make a request of him? As soon as they've done everything they're supposed to do and as soon as they just got a good review. That pretty much describes the request portion of my prayer life. How would I make that request? Uh, let's say for more pay if I was coming to my boss. I mean, I would be bold with everybody around the water cooler, but actually in my boss's presence, humbly, carefully, not brashly, not incessantly. Think about our prayer life. It's a diagnostic for the extent to which we believe. Do we pray like slaves or do we pray like children? Do we keep coming to God knowing that he wants to provide what's best for us? Or do we um, sheepishly approach him, cap in, in hand, uh, um, um, only there when we've accomplished what we think our chores are to accomplish? We can say that we believe the doctrine of adoption, but our prayers in terms of frequency, in, in terms of tone, in terms of timing, our prayers reveal whether or not we think we're kids with the Father. And so, in Luke 11, Jesus gives us a pattern. We'll cover that at a later date. He gives us a posture. It's persistence. He gives us a paradigm. It's a heavenly Father. And finally, he gives us a promise to answer a particular prayer. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets really personal. Some of us are thinking, oh, wow, this is amazing. If I just keep badgering God, I'm going to get whatever I want in life. And Ted's about to show me in the Bible, God's promise to answer all of my prayers. I want that job. I want that relationship. I want that figure. I want, I want that accolade. And, and some of us who are a little older are quite honestly right now thinking, this is bullcrap. My parents, since I was a toddler, they prayed that God would give me a good spouse. And ever since I went to that conference on virginity in high school, I've been wearing this promise ring and I've been praying every day that God would give me a spouse. And I'm getting older and older and older. Some are saying, you know what? This is pie in the sky. This promise of answered prayer, my spouse and I have been praying, we've been praying for a long time that God would give us a child. Loving, attentive father? Yeah, right. And the question is this, does this text, does the Bible for that matter actually teach that if we pray long enough and brashly enough and faithfully enough, that we can have anything we want or anything we perceive that we need? Life would tell us 
Of course not. Jesus promises to answer a particular prayer in Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, so if you'll give them a fish or an egg and not a snake or a scorpion, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So think about it. In prayer, first, God God is not a slave master. He's your father. But second, he's your father. And he's not some magical genie. He's not some gumball machine where your prayer is the quarter and you just put it in and turn it and pops out candy. If we're going to enjoy the access we have as little children in God's family, we have to embrace the reality that he is wise, he is good, he is loving, and he knows way better than us what is good for us. What toddler really knows what's best for them in life? With their limited knowledge, their limited experiences, with their limited view of reality, what toddler really knows what they need and really knows what is good for them? God is not Aladdin. If you were to give my three-year-old son Liam three wishes, his life and the world would not be any better when he was done making those wishes. In fact, everything would get worse, okay? He'd have some annoying shoes that light up, and the batteries never go dead. He'd have candy, and whenever he pointed his finger and you went, real bullets would fly out of his finger. That is what he would ask for. If we're going to enjoy the access we get in Christ, we have to embrace the reality that we're toddlers in the presence of God. Am I saying that we're as wise as a preschool when it comes to prayer? Yes. Yes, I am. Compared to the brilliance, the insight, and the love of the one to whom we pray, yes, I am. That's part of what Jesus is teaching in verse 13. Jesus says that if a human dad, and a sinful one at that, knows how to give good gifts to their children, how much more the Heavenly Father? The word for good can mean morally good, but but in this context, and more often, it means fitting, appropriate, beneficial, While Jesus is saying, on the one hand, a dad wouldn't give their toddler a snake if they asked for a fish, he's also saying that if a toddler asked for a snake thinking it's a fish, the dad wouldn't give it to him. It's not good. It's not beneficial. If we in our prayers ask for a rolled up scorpion thinking it's an egg, the the father in heaven will say no. He, He gives good gifts, appropriate gifts, fitting gifts beneficial gifts. He knows us and he knows the plan he has for us. Think about verse 13 again. What does Jesus actually say? There is a prayer that God will always say yes to. There is a request that God will always grant. Because listen, I mean, think about this. It's hard to see why, why a job or a child or a spouse or health, it's hard to see why, why that thing wouldn't be good for us at this point in time. It's hard to see why that wouldn't be best for us at this point in time. So Jesus says that this benevolent and beneficent and loving father will always answer this request with an affirmative. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him. Jesus is not saying that God will give you the spirit if you ask for something else and he wants you to have the spirit instead. He's saying God will give you the Holy Spirit if you want him and if you ask for him. What is he saying? What does this mean? Jesus is teaching us 
to ask for the Holy Spirit more often than we ask for things. What does the Holy Spirit bring to us regardless of circumstances? Joy, contentment, strength, wisdom, obedience, occasionally insight. Occasionally the Holy Spirit will give you understanding as to why God is saying no to a request. More than anything, the Holy Spirit brings faith and trust and hope. And Jesus is saying, I want you to pray like the impudent neighbor. I want you to know you're praying to Heavenly Father, but I want you to pray more often for the Spirit than anything else. It's like this, God, I really want and I really think I need X. But you're the Father who knows best. Give me your spirit so that no matter what, our relationship improves, my heart is made content, and that I'm protected from sin no matter what happens next. God, I really think my kids need why, and I'm going to keep knocking on your door until you give it to them. But more than anything, pour out your spirit on me and on my children so that we trust you and worship you and follow you into abundant life regardless of what the path feels like right now. And how can we know that the Father will give us the spirit of his Son when we ask him? And further, how can we know that this is the greatest gift we could possibly be given? Think. We can know that the spirit is is ours for asking because the spirit left Jesus on the cross. We, We can know that the spirit is the greatest gift we can possibly have in life because for every agony Jesus experienced on the cross, it wasn't until he was forsaken that he cried out in agony. We can know that the greatest gift was taken from him and it will be given to us by the grace and the justice of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us so much in the gospel. We, we thank you that through your life and your death and your resurrection, you've given us more than we can possibly imagine. We thank you that you've given us a place in the Father's heart so that when we act like little toddlers, like we are, we're loved and embraced and enjoyed and taught. Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we beg you to come. Father, give us the spirit of the Son. Sink your wisdom and your joy and, and, and your maturity Uh, sink your life deep down inside of us so that regardless of what happens in this life, we will beg you for what we want. We will trust you for what is best. We will know that you love us no matter what. Spirit, come, we pray.